If you have your Bible with you, you can turn to Luke chapter 1. In our sermon today, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9, which is quoted in part in Luke 1.79. So I thought it would be a, a good tie-in to read one of these New Testament passages that uses the Old Testament to point to its fulfillment. So this is Zacharias in Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 67, who, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to uh, sing, express praise because of the news and the understanding that he has that his son, who would be John the Baptist, is going to be the forerunner, the one who prepares people for the coming king, the coming Messiah. And this is what Zacharias says in verse 67, his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath which He swore to Abraham our father to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare His ways." to give to His people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sin in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. As we go to a time of silent prayer, let me encourage you in a couple ways, uh, things that you might consider praying about just quietly as you're seated. One, you can pray for Herb and Evelyn and the ministry that they have in North Africa, bringing the light of Christ to people, some of whom may have never heard about Him before. So asking that God would bring light to dark places and would bring people from death to life. Having said that, we know that not only do we have hope in this life, but we have hope in the life to come. And so, whenever we encounter a loss of a, of a church member, we want to pray with thankfulness, but also for comfort for the family that remains. So, Barbara Marshburn, who is a longtime member of Edgewood Baptist, passed away last week. We want to pray for her family as they grieve her loss. And then also, uh, most of you probably already know, we recently got word uh, we want to pray for John Bowles and for John and Kathy and the rest of the family. John has been diagnosed with, uh, with liver cancer, and so we want to pray for him. We want to pray that the Lord would, uh, would strengthen and encourage him, would give him just an unshakable confidence in the hope of his calling, in the inheritance that's stored up for him, and that he would be, even in this time, would be a light in a dark world. So if you would, turn your mind to the Lord in prayer, pray silently where you're seated, and I will close out our time of silent prayer with a corporate prayer in just a moment.
Father, you are the great and almighty God, the creator and sustainer of all life, who has given us life through your Son, Jesus Christ, by the regenerating power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Father, that because of the mercy extended to us, that we can come here as a new people, gathered together in the promises that you have made good and effective in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we pray that that same power that worked in us would be the power that works in many others, not just here in Columbus, but also in North Africa, as Herb and Evelyn minister and share the gospel. We pray that that light would shine into uh, dark and mournful places, such as uh, the Marshburn family is encountering right now in the loss of Barbara. Comfort and strengthen them. We pray also for John and Kathy and ask that for that entire family, that you would remind them of the fact that because of the security that they have in Jesus Christ, that they know that nothing that overtakes them can ultimately defeat them, that your favor rests on them without any change or without any diminishing, and that all things must work together for their good. Stir up our hearts and minds to pray and to intercede for them faithfully and fervently. We ask now, Father, as we go through the rest of this service, that you would draw our hearts and minds to you, that we would exalt the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, through the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to invite you to stand, and as you're standing, we're going to dismiss our children to Children's Church. They can head straight back into the vestibule. Orlando, back there, ready to receive them, and you are ready to release them, I'm sure. Um, while we're standing, uh, we're going to sing a song that most everybody knows entitled The First Noel. But you may not know what the word Noel means. We put it on our doors, we have it in our yards, we sing it every year. Uh, the, the word Noel is derived from an old French word, Niel. Uh, and the name goes back to the birth of Jesus, which was referred to Natalis Dies, meaning day of birth. So as we sing Noel, let's reflect on the day of Jesus Christ's birth. Let's rejoice. The first.
across the pages of time he who made every living thing behold him he who heard humanity's cry left his throne to wake as a child he became like the least of us Behold him, Jesus, Son of God, Messiah, the before you today to behold you to exalt your name to magnify you in all the earth he who died with sinners and saints healed the blind the lost and the lame even now he is in our midst behold him he who chose the creator
may be seated. And just as Psalm says, be still. So many times we fail to do that, just to be still and know that he is God. And he says, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted among the earth. He didn't say he might. He said he will be. And so let's just practice exalting him. Let's just practice adoring him uh, in this moment. Uh, if you want to stand up again and sing, by all means. But I just want you to be still and know that he is God in this moment. Let us adore. The heavens declare the glory of God, and all of the world will join in praise His wonders proclaim. The oceans and skies they lift up their voice, and all He has Let 
it up. Jesus Christ is the Lord. Jesus Christ. Would you sing it loud to him? Is the Lord. Jesus Christ is the Lord. Jesus Christ is the Lord. Would you sing that one last time? Dude? Jesus Christ. Just voices sing choirs of angels sing in exaltation. Oh, sing on the rivals of God, we are in all of who you are. We're grateful to be here today to worship you, 
in spirit and in truth, uh, the truth that we find in your word, Lord. And I pray that you would speak boldly through that word, through Jonathan. Use him as a wonderful instrument in your hand to bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open up to the book of Isaiah. <clears throat> Before we read the passage that we're, uh, we're going to be spending time in this morning, I actually want to do something of a, uh, a brief review of where we were the last two weeks um, before to lead us up to where we are this morning, because I think it will, it will help us see in, maybe with renewed emphasis or in a greater way, uh, sort of the drama that unfolds in Isaiah chapter 9, which is where we're going to be spending our time. Uh, this is the, the third week that we're in Isaiah. We were in Isaiah 1, Isaiah 7, and now Isaiah 9, setting our attention and focus to Advent, to the coming of Christ. And one of the things that, uh, that we saw among many things in Isaiah 1, uh, a passage that J.T. preached, is that uh, Isaiah starts off his book, his writing, basically depicting or presenting that God would have a people, but His people would not have Him. Right? And the way that this is demonstrated is just in the rampant sin, idolatry, impurity, and rebellion that His people are guilty of. So if you're in Isaiah chapter 1, just one verse among many that sort of encapsulates the thrust of that first chapter is verse 4 where the Lord turns His attention to His people, and He says, Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. That's it in a nutshell. So part of what we celebrate when we celebrate Advent is that when the Lord comes in the person of Jesus Christ, He doesn't come to find people who are clean and pristine and pure. He comes to people who are dirty and filthy and sin so that He can clean them. And then Isaiah chapter 7 sort of gives us in a historical episode a real-time demonstration of just how far and how broken these people are. So if you were here with us last week, Ahaz is the king of Judah. There is a, a two-king alliance, the northern kingdom of Israel, along with the kingdom of Aram, immediately to its north, that have joined forces to go down. They want to capture Jerusalem. They want to depose Ahaz, put in a puppet king, so that they can build this alliance to withstand the impending threat of this growing Assyrian empire to the east. And it's, it's in this threat from these, these hostile forces, which, by the way, God's people are suffering these threats and these hostile forces as an act of His discipline and judgment for their sin. But as they begin to bear the brunt of the consequences of their sin, the Lord sends Isaiah with a message of hope and an offer of salvation to people who don't deserve it. Ahaz, if you will simply trust me, 
I will take care of this. You don't need to turn to anyone else. I have the ability to do it. And at the end of the, of the passage that we were at last week, remember there's the, the big climactic buildup where after making the promise that the Lord is going to save and deliver His people from this pressure and from imminent destruction as a way to more greatly assure Ahaz and the people that God is going to do it, he actually gives Ahaz a blank check and says, basically, ask of me whatever you want, whatever kind of sign to confirm my word to you, and I'll do it. But Ahaz has already made up his mind. He doesn't want to turn to the Lord. He doesn't want to repent. He doesn't want to to live by faith. And so he turns in seemingly pious language, oh no, I would never test the Lord that way. And so the Lord says, fine, I'll give you a sign myself. On the one hand, a virgin will conceive, she'll bear a son. In the time it takes him to grow to know the difference between good and evil, in that short period of time, this threat that you think threatens your very existence is going to dissipate, it's going to be gone. It's going to show itself to be a faint and futile threat because of my protection. But because you have not turned in faith, because you're persisting in your sin, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 17, the Lord will bring on you on your people, and on your father's house such days as have never come since the day that Ephraim separated from Judah, the king of Assyria. So the Lord is saying, I'm going to spare you from this pain, this warfare, this is going to dissipate, but there is another greater judgment that's going to come because of the fact that you will not turn to me and you will not repent and believe. And then what happens from 7.18 on up to chapter 9, which is where we're going to be this morning, is that you have Isaiah in, in various ways basically detailing or outlining just how sad and pitiful the condition of the people are and what it will be as they continue to experience God's hand of discipline on them because of their unrepentant sin. So, for example, start with me in 7.18. I'm sorry, 7.20. After talking about the fact that he's going to bring the Assyrian Empire to to punish and to discipline them, he gives vivid language in 7.20, and he says, In that day the Lord will shave with a razor hired from the regions beyond the Euphrates, that is, with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the legs, and it will also remove the beard. Right now, most of us are sitting here thinking, oh, no, not that. Not a clean shave. All right, but here's the picture that's being, that's being painted there. The picture is these people are going to come in. They're going, to, they're going to run rampant. They're going to pull you out into the streets, strip you naked, and they're going to shave you from head to toe, bald, no beard, right? The men are going to be humiliated to, just to show you, to rub it in your face that they have conquered and defeated you. That's what's coming utter humiliation. Chapter 8, verse 12. In spite of the fact that the Lord is telling them exactly what's going to happen and that this is His work bringing discipline on them, the people are going to see all of this, they're going to experience it, and they're not going to be able to recognize what it is that's happening in their midst. They are so thick, they are so hard-headed. In Isaiah chapter 8, verse 12, 
The Lord says to Isaiah, you are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy, and you are not to fear what they fear or be dread in it or to be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you shall regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. In other words, when the Assyrian threat comes and when God disciplines through the Assyrian empire, rather than turning and saying, this comes from the hand of the Lord because of our sin, He is calling us back to Him, they're going to see this as nothing more than world politics at play, as people who are conspiring against them. The Lord does not even factor into their equation. They don't interpret anything that's happening in their life to the Lord working in their midst to call them out of their sin and to come back to Him. No, everything is a conspiracy. It's a bad turn of events. Chapter 8, verse 17, Isaiah says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding His face from the house of Jacob. As far as the people are concerned, as they begin to go through the discipline of of the Lord, it's going to be as if the Lord is not even looking after them to care for them. He's going to be nowhere to be found. Chapter 8, verse 19, when they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. Discipline comes, the Lord is working, and rather than turning and asking for His guidance and direction, they say, who else has a word that they can give us to really be able to figure out what it is that we're encountering right now? We'll go to the spiritists, we'll go to the mediums, we'll go to the talking heads. The last thing that they'll do is to turn to the Lord and listen to what the Lord is saying. And so all of this then comes to a climax at the end of chapter 8, verses 21 and 22. When all of this comes to pass, here is the end state. They will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished. And it will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged and cursed by their king and by their God as they face upward. Then they will look to the earth and behold, nothing but distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness." left in darkness, left in gloom, being driven further and further into darkness. That's what's going to happen because of their persistence in sin, because of their rebellion against the Lord, because they have despised Him and have not listened to Him. And so after all of that then, we are not prepared for the turn that comes in Isaiah 9-1. And here it is. Read with me 9-1 through 7. After saying, there will be nothing but darkness and gloom and anguish. 9-1. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he, that is the Lord, treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. 
You, Lord, will multiply the nation. You will increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence. As with the gladness of harvest, as when men rejoice, dividing the spoil. For you will break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the tumult of battle and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, would you cause us to marvel at your grace demonstrated to us in the power of your Son, Jesus Christ, who came in weakness so that he could conquer. May your Holy Spirit be active in our hearts and minds to give us a right understanding, to help us to welcome the truth as we see it. Father, bring conviction if conviction is needed. Bring comfort where comfort is needed. But, Father, restore our hope and turn our eyes to you, we ask during this time, as we hear your word. Amen. So, how do you go from chapter 1, verse 4, a people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, people who have despised and who have turned from the Lord, how do you go from that, people walking in darkness, being driven further and further into darkness, to now in 9-1, just turning on a dime and saying, but there'll be no more darkness or gloom at this later date. Right? One of the, one of the things, if you, if you take 9, 1 through 7, we'll break it up into two parts. We'll take verses 1 through 3, and then we'll take verses 4 through 7. All right, 1 through 3 is basically saying, okay, even though the near future is going to be pain and suffering and misery because of your sin, the future after that is actually going to be vastly different. Different as night and day literally. But the thing that's interesting, when you look at verses 1 through 3, this this change in the fate and the future of God's people is that there is nothing in 1 through 3 that indicates there has been a change in the people. And by that I simply mean this, there is nothing in 1 through 3 as we're being given a description of this bright and glorious future that's going to come to these people. There's nothing in the text that says the reason that their future is going to change is because they're going to get their act together. Right? Remember back in Isaiah chapter 1? As the Lord is laying out the case against His people... You despise me. You've turned from me. You make a mockery of worship. He makes the appeal. 
wash yourself, make yourself clean. If you believe, you will eat the best of the land, but if you don't, you will be devoured. There's no mention in 9, 1 through 3 that the people have done that. There's no mention that they have cleaned themselves up, that they have gotten their act together, and that they have made ready the way of the Lord so that He can come and change their fortune. In other words, you go from chapters 7 and 8 into chapter 9, basically saying, but aren't we still dealing with the same people? If they deserve all of the punishment and discipline that they're getting in the first seven chapters, why in the world would they deserve what they're getting in 9, 1 through 3? And Isaiah 9 does not answer that question outright. Spoiler alert, the rest of Isaiah does, right? might want to read Isaiah 53, but... Here we don't get a direct answer. What we do see, though, is that while on the one hand there is nothing that indicates the people have done anything to change their fate or their future, the flip side of that is when you go through verses 1 through 7, the only actor in verses 1 through 7, the sole actor is God. God does all of this for His people. And they just soak it in and benefit from His blessings that they don't deserve. These people are not looking for God. These people are not turning to repent to Him. There is nothing that these people have done that would indicate they are worthy of a fresh start. But God, in His infinite mercy, breaks up this unending pattern of sin, rebellion, and judgment and says, we just need to fix this once and for all so that I can bless you, so that I can be kind to you. Who does that? Listen, people, understand, I mean, we're going to be trying to drive this point home, understand that, that this episode, this passage in the Old Testament, right, this is not just the story of a people, this is the story of God's people. If you count yourself as one of God's people because of your faith in Jesus Christ, you ought to see something of the grace of God in Isaiah 9 being relevant and applicable to your own life, meaning that apart from the sheer grace and mercy of God rescuing you out of your sin and your rebellion, you would have no future and no hope. You would not look for God. He would look for you. You would not find the light. The light would find you. Do you hear that language in, in chapter 9? When you look at verse 2, for example, look back at the text. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Right? That's the picture of people who are walking around in a dark room, fumbling around, trying to make their way through, and all of a sudden the light switch turns on and light is there, not because they have created the light, but because someone else has. 
God is going to turn these people from the kind of people who despise the Holy One of Israel to, verse 3, the kind of people who are glad in His presence. That is a dramatic change from what these people deserve. And then verses 4 through 7 go through, and they basically outline what it is that brings this change about. How do we go from this bleak, near future of God's discipline and judgment that we deserve, how do we go from that to all of a sudden having this bright, thriving, flourishing future with joy and happiness? So here's verses 4 through 7. There are three statements that are made in these verses that, that give an explanation as to why there's a change in the future of the people. So verses 1 through 3 talk about what the change is going to be, how they're going to go from darkness to light, and then verses 4 through 6 say how that change comes about. So verse 4, for, F-O-R, for, because you will break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. The reason that God's people will no longer suffer judgment at the hands of their enemies is because God is going to break the enemy's hold on them. They're not going to break free. God is going to free them. The language that's used here is language that shows up in the Old Testament in reference to the way that God broke their burden, relieved the oppression that they were under during their enslavement and captivity in Egypt, right? Where a weak and helpless people are just languishing away because their enemies have them neatly and firmly under their thumb. Life is miserable, and the Lord comes in, and in dramatic fashions, He rescues them with His strong, outstretched arm. And when He brings them out of Egypt, He brings them to meet with Him at Sinai, and He says, you yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt, how I, I, bore you, brought you to Myself on eagle's wings. You didn't break free. I broke you free. So the first explanation as to why these people actually are going to have a bright future is because there's coming a point in time in which God graciously, mercifully, miraculously is going to take the grip of the enemy that holds His people and He's going to break their, break their grip off of His people, break the chains, break the bonds, and He's going to usher them out into freedom. Second reason they have a bright future is because of what we see in verse 5. After saying, for you will break the rod, the burden, the oppression, you have a second statement, for every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. Oh, that makes sense, right? Clear as mud. Here, here's what's being said in verse 5. Verse 4 says, what God is going to do is He's going to break you free from the hold that your enemies have on you. 
Verse 5 goes a step further and says, and when he does that, it's not going to be the case that he's going to sort of wrench their hands off of you. You're going to sprint out running away, but looking over your shoulder the whole time. Are they going to catch us? Are they going to get us again, right? How long will this last? No. When I break you free, verse 4, verse 5 says, I'm going to break you free, and I am going to utterly destroy, break, not just their grip on you, I'm going to break their power. They will never be able to come back and lay hold of you again. So when I bring you into freedom, it is going to be a permanent, lasting freedom. You don't have to wonder, well, who's going to get us next? You don't have to wonder, how long is this little respite going to last? Because when I break their hold on you and bring you out, I'm going to destroy, I'm going to conquer your enemies so that when you walk into my freedom and my joy and my delight, you know that it's going to be forever. And then to, to cap it all off, the reason that all of this is going to happen, the reason that the grip of the enemy is going to be broken, the reason that the power of the enemy is going to be broken so that it cannot threaten God's people anymore comes in verse 6, the third explanation. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given I'm going to give you a baby. Those two things don't add up. We don't need a baby. We got plenty of those. What we need is a general. What we need is a master tactician. What we need is new armor. What we need is equipment. What we need is a stronger army. We need all of these things. And the Lord says, no. What you need is this baby. Because in the wisdom of God, bringing all human pretensions to nothing, humbling us and showing us how empty we are in this supposed strength and pride that we have, the Lord brings a baby onto the scene and says, now it's actually going to be through this helpless, weak baby that I'm actually going to do all the things that you can't do for yourself. This baby, this child, this son that I'm going to give, there it is again, right? It's going to, this child is going to be given to us. We're not going to create this deliverer. God is going to give us a deliverer. But notice what kind of deliverer is going to come. This child that's given is going to grow up to be the king. And you get this beautiful four-part description, these titles that are given to this future child who's going to come, who will one day, under God's provision and providence, end up being the king of his people. Verse 6, this child will grow up to be a wonderful counselor, something like a supernatural or a wonder-working kind of counselor. You know why this is good news to people who are listening to Isaiah say this? Because of the boneheads in Jerusalem. 
who think that they are wise, who think that they have things figured out, and through their leadership, they end up bankrupting the people and leading them from one disaster to the next, all in their sophisticated wisdom. No, there's coming a king who's not going to be like all those other kings fumbling around in the dark looking for answers. He's going to be supernaturally wise in all that he thinks and says and the way that he directs the people. If you listen to him and to his counsel, you will never walk in darkness again. By the way, later in Isaiah chapter 11, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of the Lord and wisdom rests on this coming king, and we're told that the wisdom that this king is going to, be, is, that this king is going to possess is such that he does not have to rely on what his eyes see or his ears hear to render a, a right and perfect decision. He just simply knows everything that needs to be done. He doesn't need any help. This child that's going to grow up to be your king is a supernatural counselor. He's also mighty God. All these other kings of the world, all these other people say that they're tapped into divinity. I'm going to give you a real divine king. And not just a king who's divine, a king who is a mighty divine king like strong and mighty, so that when this king comes on the scene and when he begins to rule and reign for his people, no one is going to be able to withstand whatever it is that he sets out to do. If he sets out to deliver his people, no one is going to be able to resist that. If he sets out to feed and provide his people, he can do whatever he wants. There is no one who is able to resist his will and his power. But third statement, not only is he a, a wonder-making counselor, not only is he a mighty God, he is an eternal father. The problem with people who have just a little bit of wisdom, who have just a little bit of strength, the, the real danger comes in when they seem to know that they have it because then they tend to rule in a heavy-handed sort of way. Here is someone who's going to come on the scene who is going to be perfectly wise. He's going to have all knowledge and insight. He's going to have the very power of God at his disposal. He is God. And yet, he is going to relate to his people not as a heavy-handed taskmaster, but as a father would deal gently with his children. Anyone have a boss like that? Anyone seen a king, a president, a congressional representative who's like that? You restrain your laughter in an admirable way. No, no one has ever seen this. Someone with all wisdom and all power who yet comes and gently serves and ministers the needs of his people. And this king, when he comes on to minister, to comfort, to provide, 
is not going to be like all the other kings who's here one day and gone the next. When he comes and takes up his rule and reign, his rule and reign will continue. He's eternal. And the last description, the last title, Prince of Peace. Everything that will characterize the rule and reign of this king, everything that will characterize him can be summed up in the word peace. Everything is going to be right. Everything is going to be safe and secure. Everything is going to be whole again. You're not going to be missing anything. He's going to put it all back together again. And he's going to hold it that way, and he's going to keep it that way. And his people, who don't deserve this kind of perfect, blissful existence, are going to enjoy the rule and reign of this king without any interruption. His throne is going to increase. It is never going to shrink. The boundaries are never going to be pushed back. The glory of the Lord, Isaiah will say later, through this king will cover the earth like water covers the sea. And just in case all of this sounds too good to be true, verse 7 ends with the line saying, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. If the Lord can bring this cosmos, this universe into existence with a mere word, it doesn't cost him. It doesn't exert anything. What in the world is the Lord able to accomplish when he is zealous to do it? When he is bent and determined to do this for his people, is there any chance that it's not going to come true, that it's not going to come to fruition? Is there any chance that the desires of an infinite, omnipotent God are going to be frustrated. No. The zeal of God is going to accomplish this. This will happen. Turn to Matthew chapter 4. I hear that and I want it. I want it because I need it. All of us should hear that and have hearts that are stirred and made hungry to have that kind of king, to have that kind of ruler, healing them, providing for them. Matthew chapter 4. I'm in Mark chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Everyone here already? Echoes of Isaiah 9? This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, and he quotes the passage that we were just in. 
the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Listen, people, this is our joy and our privilege in the run-up to Christmas. To say that when we look at Isaiah 9, the people who would have first heard that message from Isaiah, that there is a king who is coming, we get to say, but we know that the king has already come. We don't have to wait on him to come anymore. He already has come. And we have the unspeakable privilege and blessing not just simply to say we know something about this king that's come. We know these titles or these references to him. We know him by name, Jesus. And everything that Isaiah says this king is going to bring to his people, the scriptures will go on to say in the unfolding of God's plan, all of that is already at your disposal right now. You have ruling and reigning in your midst because of the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. You have a supernatural counselor who will guide you and direct you, who will say to you, this is the way, walk in it. You have a king who is also mighty God, who when he sets his mind to delivering you and setting you free, is able to do that, and no one and nothing can stand in his way. His power and his authority is unrivaled, and it works for your good and your benefit. You have a king who does not rule over you with a heavy hand, but who treats you like a father would treat a weak child. As the Lord has compassion on His children, or as a father has compassion on His children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. For He knows our frame, He knows that we are but dust. And because we know that the Lord rules and reigns, we know that we live in peace, in wholeness, knowing that we fear no threat, that we fear no enemy, because the Lord is for us. Who can be against us? And here's the other side to this. Not only are we in the privileged position of being able to say, that king has come, that king has already ushered in freedom through his death and resurrection on our behalf. He took our sin, he took the consequences of it, and he buried it along with himself to be raised again to new life that he gives to his people. We also say we celebrate not one advent, but we celebrate one Advent while we look forward to another Advent to come. You know that, right? You know that what we are only just now beginning to taste, we are going to feast on in full when this King comes again. There's another Advent coming that's even better than the first Advent that we celebrate at Christmas. Do you know that? Is that your hope? All this stuff, all this noise, 
all these talking heads, all this chattering, it means nothing. It's not going to last. He will. Empires are going to rise and fall. His kingdom never will. Nations will go into, into decline, not his kingdom. Let me leave you with this quote by someone who lived several centuries ago making this very point. Cyril of Jerusalem. Good old Cyril. Cyril said back in the 300s, We preach not one advent only of Christ, but a second also, far more glorious than the former. In his former advent, he was wrapped in swaddling clothes in the manger. In his second, he covers himself with light as with a garment. In his first coming, he endured the cross, despising the shame. In his second, he comes attended by a host of angels receiving glory. We rest not then upon his first advent only, but look also for his second. And as at his first coming we said, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord, so will we repeat the same at his second coming, that when with angels we meet our master, we may worship him and say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Even so, Lord, come. Let's pray. Merciful God and Savior, how we thank you for sending your Son, the eternal Son, to take on finite human flesh to save us from our sin and despair. Jesus Christ, Son of God and Son of Man, how we thank you that you willingly veiled your glory and your majesty and took on weakness so that we could be made strong. Holy Spirit, thank you for penetrating our dark hearts, for opening blind eyes and deaf ears to be able to see and hear Jesus for who he really is so that we could know the hope of his calling. And Father, as we go out from here, we ask that with the same confidence that we have that the first advent of your Son has truly been accomplished and effected your intended work, that we would look with eager anticipation and hope to that second greater coming when all that you have started, all that you have begun will be brought to perfection and fruition in the unending rule and reign of Jesus Christ on the earth. Make us glad and joyful all the days of our life as we look forward to that. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand together as we sing about that wonderful light that Jonathan uh, just preached on, the little town of Bethlehem.